Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Really extraordinary. He had four or five mobile phones uh, there on his desk. In front of me, there was a kind of a heavy man standing behind him. There was a good-looking woman on the bed. And, and, and he was utterly brazen, and, and he was fixing games right in front of me. Welcome to Coffee and Football. I'm Sebastian Alvarado, and I'm the host of this long-form interview-style podcast where I sit down with some of the most interesting profiles involved in the game to learn about their life and career journeys. First and foremost, I'd like to thank each and everyone who's listened so far. The feedback and the response has been beyond expectations, so I thank you for that. On that note, I'd like to ask you for a huge favor. Please subscribe to this on iTunes and write a review unless you've already done it. It will help tremendously in getting visibility as we grow this initiative one listener at a time. Anyways, enough about that and let's dive into this week's episode. I had the opportunity to chat with Declan Hill. He's considered perhaps the number one expert in the world on match fixing and corruption. He's an academic and an investigative journalist who has written two of the most important books on the topic. The Insider's Guide to Match Fixing in Football and The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime. This is one of the most intriguing conversations I've had. So, without further ado, let's dive straight into this. Declan, welcome to Coffee and Football. Uh, thanks for having me on. Hope you and the listeners enjoy this. I'm sure we will. How are you doing today? I'm I'm good. It's a it's a great day, uh, and uh, very good. Very happy to be on. Uh, and look, uh, basically, what we're going to be talking about is the greatest threat to the existence of modern day sport. Uh, I don't think there's a single other issue which so threatens uh, sport today as match fixing and corruption at all levels, from esports to soccer to um, games and uh, events right around the world. So. Um, this is really the big issue that will 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 really, if our generation doesn't uh, actively combat it and address it, we may lose sports. You know, at least I'm happy that finally we're we're putting a little bit of a spotlight on it, and it is being talked about, and the most important media around the world is picking up on it. Um, what are so? What are you currently uh, working on these days? 
I, I've been engaged uh, since 1998 in corruption issues in and around sports. And there's a couple of things I wanted to say to our listeners right off the bat. One, I'm not coming in your eardrums and saying there's this new thing, in quotation marks, match fixing. I, I'm not. Match fixing has been around since the ancient Olympics, uh, set up in 753 BC. Um, you know, it, 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 match fixing and corruption has been embedded in sports for thousands of years. But what we're seeing now, what we're seeing in this generation, in the last 10 to 15 years, is really the phenomenon of globalization. Um, internet, TV broadcasts, spreading uh, sports corruption and hitting sports corruption in a wholly unique way. We've never seen this before. And in a weird way, globalization is transforming sports corruption in the same way globalization is transforming journalism or the travel industry or the music industry. So, A, we've never seen that before. Two, um, you asked me, just generally, I think, you know, what am I doing today? Well, I've been engaged uh, for almost 20 years in the fight against sports corruption and match fixing. And really, for the first few years, up until 2008, first 10 years, it was getting anyone to believe that it actually existed. It was a real fight. It was getting, um, uh, being able to expose what the fixes were doing. We were able to expose what the corrupt people at the top of various sports were doing. And that was the challenge, uh, both staying alive and also dodging legal bullets. But then there was the question of denial. People just didn't want to believe it, uh, right from the, the sports officials that were complicit with some of the issues down to the average sports fan who just didn't want to take that on board. Now, however, Sebastian, what we're engaged in is a fight in the media, in the public sphere, because some of the some of the uh, bad operators in this uh, world are spinning the issue of sports integrity in the media in an extraordinary way, and that's the next big challenge that we're facing now. Where where was the? I mean, you mentioned that you know the public they they wouldn't believe in it really, but where did the main pushback come from? Was it from from more mainstream established media as you try to get some of your work out there? or Look, uh, uh, the great president, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, once referred to the military-industrial complex uh, and warned the U.S. public, in fact, the world at large, to be careful of the arms, in, arms industry. Uh, the same kind of thing exists in sports. It sounds a little weird, but it's really a sports-industrial complex. So you have journalists that are extremely close to high sports officials, broadcasters. Um, there's really a tight embedded network in and around that the top of sports. And so actually what many sports fans are consuming on a daily basis isn't pure independent journalism. What it is is it's really PR for the sports uh, uh, industry. Yeah, that's interesting. I was um, at a speech a while ago with the uh, film director, Oliver Stone, and uh, he was discussing media mm -hmm. and new media and internet and so on. And he said a pretty interesting thing. And he said, I, I, th I think the quote was, as long as media is a profit driving, as long as media are profit driving entities, we can never trust them. 
Yeah, I, I, I think so. And But I, I think as well that most people tend to forget that when they're coming up and dealing with sport. They, we, we tend to um, – you know, we tend to be quite skeptical and cynical when, in issues of politics and issues of, you know, economics and trade and almost anything else except for sports. And sports is really where as adults we turn to. It's our children's playground where we can pretend that everything is innocent and, and, and pure. And, and, and the news I've got is that, look, guys, there's an industrial complex. Um, much of what you're consuming isn't the real story. Uh, there is a real biased, bigoted, Excuse me. There's a real bias to much of what you read in the sports media. Since you are, I mean, you're clearly on, on the inside and and know more about this than than almost anybody else. How do you typically like react? Like, uh, you know, there was a recent case. Uh, the Italian uh, Italian Serie A just wrapped up um, the last game. Uh, I believe it was Napoli against Frosinone. And, uh, well, most of the media highlighted that, you know, Iguain scored so and so many goals and broke the record. But, you know, then there were some reports that there had been, you know, some unusual betting activity going on. There was a very, uh, very odd red card to, uh, to a Frosinone player, I believe, in the 13th minute. And, um, but it was almost like it was almost like a little by story in, in in everything else and the glory of what that game represented for a goal scorer becoming the top scorer and so on. How how do you typically, you know, re- react to those? Uh, well, look, in in Italian football, I think it's a joke. It's a it's a dead man walking. I I, I can't understand how anyone can take that league or that sport in Italy seriously. Um, I agree with the president, the former president of Italy, who said that we should just suspend Italian football for a year, clean it up properly, make sure that all the bad apples have got out, and then restart it, re, you know, re, just relaunch it, relaunch clubs, relaunch leagues. It's such a joke. And I, I don't want to comment on that specific one because there's no hard evidence except some betting movements. But at the very same time, there was hard evidence of yet more fixing in Serie Bay. That's the second division in Italy when the Italian police moved in and arrested 10 Camorra. That's the kind of Naples gangsters or mafia and a number of players uh, for fixing matches. And, you know, it's yet another one. I mean, crikey, you know, how many, how many do we have to go through? And much of those fixes in Italian football and Greek football and Spanish football and Maltese football and Cyprus football and Turkish football are completely preventable. I mean, they're utterly, utterly preventable. I mean, most of the fixing in Italian football, which has gone on for generations, uh, there's a great book by John McGuinness called The Miracle of uh, Castello di Sangre about uh, Italian football. And he talks about some of the fixes that occurred in Italian football. Look, they always occur, or excuse me, much of the time they occur in the last uh, quarter of the the season, so the last couple of months, usually the last couple of weeks. I'm surprised that any bookmaker, serious bookmaker, takes any bets on Italian football in that last week. The the amount of rigging of games in, in that league is so renowned. And it's a really good way of avoiding that. Let's just move to a playoff system. I mean, come on. You know, it, it, it's not rocket science. You just move to a playoff system. You have a playoff for... You know, you change the tournament uh, a little bit and you, you've got 90% of your fixing out of the way right away. You've got the fixing where the club manager or the club owner is walking into the dressing room and telling the team, we've got to do this because we made an arrangement. You get rid of that and then you can start tackling the other stuff, the gambling match fixing. But really, Italian fixing at the end of the season, come on, guys. You know, how many games, how many seasons, how many years, how many decades 
Do we have to watch this this nonsense and not simply say, you know what, we could change this with a flick of a pen, just bam, playoff system, finished, no more discussion of this kind of nonsense. Um, for someone who doesn't know you, how do you typically introduce yourself and what it is that you do? Well, I, look, I'm an, I, I'm an investigative researcher, both a journalist and an academic. Uh, I come from a family of academics. I believe very strongly in good evidence-based research, uh, whether it's quantitative, i.e. statistics, or qualitative that's going out and actually listening to people. I don't mean having interviews. I mean actually sitting down and listening to people. And that's a very rare skill that um, doesn't get taught um, either in journalism school or in universities and really taking those what people say seriously and double checking it and and really analyzing and thinking about what they say so that's the kind of work that I do uh, I've had the good fortune of breaking a number of stories from the Russian mafia involvement in the National Hockey League that's the ice hockey league here in North America uh, to the the fixing and figure skating uh, pre-2002 where the French and Russians were getting together fixing events uh, to this network of sports uh, gambling-related fixing, which is now, as I said, threatening existence of many of modern-day sports. I want to just, uh, before we dive into greater detail in, uh, of, of your work and, and the topic at hand, I just want to ask you a little bit about your uh, background and, and upbringing. Where uh, did you grow up? I'm sorry, I never answer those questions, and I, I don't answer them for two reasons, Sebastian. I'm not trying to be a jerk here. Uh, one is that the man is nothing and the work is everything. You know, it's a famous quote by Georges Sand. So um, uh, I always ask people, look, just look at my work, because what I say is very controversial. Don't look at me. This isn't about Declan Hill. It's just about the work. It's about the evidence out there. And second of all, um, I, I've had a number of very weird, uh, threatening uh, communications over over my career, and so I just prefer to try to protect my personal life as much as possible. Fair enough. So we're going to spend obviously the the bulk of the time on the work that you've done on corruption and and match fixing. So in in order to uh, you know really understand what what's going on, you know, can we first just set the stage? So I would like for you to set the stage with the basics. So if you can walk me through the process as it relates to match fixing. So how does it work? Who are the key players involved? And what does the process and methodology typically look like? Sure. Look, uh, number one, it's what I was saying at the top of the program. Uh, there is a new phenomenon that we've never seen before, and that's the globalization of the sports gambling market. This is key. Um, and, and really, it has fundamentally changed in the last 10 to 15 years. Again, this is the same kind of phenomenon that we've seen in any other industry, like music, like tourism, like journalism. It's fundamentally changing sports gambling. What used to be with sports gambling was a whole myriad of tiny little markets. So if you wanted to bet on an NCAA tier one game or even tier two game, you'd have to go to a bar, you'd have to phone up some organized crime guys based somewhere in the United States and make a bet. And you couldn't place all that much money on the game because, you know, the, the network, the pool of money that was on these games was so small. It was just, you know, a couple of uh, hundred thousand, maybe a couple of million. It wasn't all that much. Now what's happened is that all that money, all that, all that liquid cash has conglomerated and is floating around the world thanks to the internet and thanks to internet-based gambling. So you can go on any of these gambling sites and literally 
you can place a bet on the Highland Games, which are happening in Glasgow, Scotland, in a couple of weeks. You know, the caber tossing. Like, who knew? I mean, 10, 15 years ago, you never would have been able to do that. Um, and so that is the, the, the number one phenomenon that our listeners should, 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 should appreciate. That this has changed. It's fundamental. We've never seen that. And the size of that market is the second thing. It's huge. It's hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, is there an is there an estimate on it? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of estimates. Now, I I I, I caution listeners, like guys, uh, girls, don't you know, be careful of of the ballpark figure. Basically, the the takeaway message is this is an enormous market of sports gambling around the world. You can measure in hundreds of billions. I'll give you four quotes. I'll give you four estimates. One, the World Lottery Association in 2009 estimated at $93 billion. World Lottery is the government-run public people, uh, public institution gambling that you have in Canada, uh, Netherlands, uh, a number of countries around the Germany, a number of countries like that. And their CEO put together this study and it said, okay, all sports gambling in the world in 2009 was $93 billion. Now, the, the steel industry is worth somewhere around $100 billion. So you've got a sense of how big it was. Well, four years later, 2013, his private counterparts uh, came forward, an organization called the European Sports Security Association out of Brussels, which is kind of a, a, a think tank for all the private boys, the, the private bookmakers. <clears throat> they said, no, the guys have got it wrong. The actual figure for all the sports gambling is $323 billion. Then Interpol, which is the International Police Association, came out with another study uh, last year, 2015. They said it's $500 billion. Well, I was speaking with a, a, a good friend and colleague who ran a sports book in, in Asia, and he said, no, nah, you know, my estimate is probably $1.3 trillion. Wow. So you've got from 93 to 1.3, 93 billion to 1.3 trillion dollars. And, 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 and my takeaway message is guys, we're never really going to be able to know this. It's like knowing the size of the Mexican drug market. You know, when the cartels crack open their financial records and we can see it all, then we can make, come up with an accurate estimate. Uh, at the moment, just say, to yourselves, it's really, really, really big. It's it's huge. It's a, it's 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 really a massive amount of money, and what it's doing is it's flowing around the world now. Whereas 15 years ago, nobody would bet on the Highland Games taking part and you know caber tossing. Uh, now, there's a few thousand bucks on it. Now, for a regional soccer game happening in New York City, there might be twenty, thirty thousand, and the players aren't being paid, if at all. More than a thousand bucks. Uh, when I was out in, uh, Asia, uh, 2013, there was a, a monsoon that was, uh, excuse me, a typhoon that was hitting most of the, the countries. And therefore, much of the games, most of the games have been called off the books. There was one game going on on a late Friday night as I'm in the, you know, this bookmakers, uh, you know, headquarters that's on their books that's going ahead. It's uh, a group of under-16 players in Hong Kong. They're playing the under-16 team from Macau. And they're $4 million on those teenagers playing. $4 million bucks. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting those guys are fixing, but I'm saying this is the power of this huge market. This is why in our generation we're facing such a challenge. The sports gambling market is so large. Who are the key players? 
specifically with the sports gambling market, there are a group of brokers, um, basically out of Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand. And uh, let, let me step back a, a moment. When I worked in Iraq, I worked with a very good Norwegian colleague, and she had worked with the oil brokerage uh, business in um, Oslo. And I, in back in the day, uh, if you wanted to insure your tanker, your super tanker, anywhere in the world, you could either do it in Dubai or Oslo. Those are the only two places. I don't know why, but that's what it was. And in Oslo, uh, there was a street of maybe a hundred, uh, marine oil insurance brokers and they would compete on one deal. And they'll be like, okay, Sebastian, I'm going to try to undercut Sebastian. And then the next day or two hours later, they'd be colluding. They'd be saying, hey, I've just got this deal coming in. It's too big for me. You want a piece of it? Blah, blah, blah. That kind of brokerage is what's happening with match fixing. So I've just called these guys brokers. What most of, most of the time I just call them match fixers. And they are, um, uh, based out of, as I said, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand. Um, they travel around the world and they put together deals. They put together fixes that are, that are happening around the world. How they do that is extraordinary. Uh, let me give you another example. There's a lot of match fixing in the Canadian Soccer League, which is a third tier league up here in Canada. Um, essentially that works through Germany. Uh, a bunch of, uh, Balkan, uh, Guys have got together with uh, the match fixers or brokers out of Singapore, and those Balkan guys come to Canada and they fix the actual game, be it with a referee or teams or players. And they say, okay, you fix the following way. And they go back and they tell the Asian guys, this is what's going to happen. And the Asian guys fix the market, that huge sports gambling market. So an international fix has two elements. One is fixing the game. The other is fixing the market. But to put together a fix in the Canadian Soccer League, it goes from Canada to Germany to Croatia, Serbia, Slovenia, over to Singapore, to Hong Kong, to Malaysia, and finally to the Philippines. Whoa! <laughs> Brother, that's like eight or nine different countries over three continents to fix one soccer game. But that's how this network has evolved, and that's how big it has become. So... um uh uh what happens is um really it's kind of like an international business marriage uh there was a famous meeting almost like a summit meeting where some of the balkan boys met some of the asian boys in a hotel room in vienna and they were going back and forth and the asian guys said look how do we know how much a fix is worth because you phone us and you say, we're fixing a game in Switzerland. We put 60,000 bucks or 100,000 bucks or whatever on it, and it doesn't happen. How do we know that this fix is going to happen? And so what they worked out between themselves in this summit meeting was that when the Balkan guys had only the referee on the fix, they would call it a one-star fix because they, the referee couldn't guarantee it, all the way up to a five-star fix when both teams were in on the fix. So a two-star was when there were the referee and a couple of players. And then the third one was, was, you know, a couple of players on both teams. And then the fourth one was most of the team. And the fifth one was a gold-plated five-star fix where you could put your money on all the way. 
and 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 so this is what they do. So it's really a um, uh, it, it's really fixing the global globalized gambling market and the actual game itself. Wow, incredible. Um, I, I guess I would understand the answer to this, but why the the Southeast Asian countries? And how did it start in those markets? Is it just because it's unregulated or are there other kind of driving forces for why that's become sort of the hub? I think it's fantastic opportunity. I, I think uh, there was a, a fixer out of Indonesia <clears throat> back in the early 90s uh, called Uncle Frankie. Um, and he was a genius, uh, a brilliant man. And he, he understood globalization before anyone else did. He was, a you know, for Silicon Valley um, uh, terms. He was an early adapter. He understood very quickly that that there was these massive, powerful Asian sports gambling markets, and there were these uh, matches around the world that that ga- those gambling markets were betting on. And so he just sent his people out to them. He sent he sent people out to uh, uh, the UK where they they hooked up with uh, 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 Bruce Grobelar, the the Liverpool goalkeeper. He went through five or six different. Um, uh, you know, trials about this. He didn't know who was at one end of the network, but this was all the Indonesian-based guys who were sending their people to the World Cups. They sent them to the Under-17 World Cup. They sent them to the Under-20 World Cup. Uh, they were at the Qatar World Cup in 1995, the Under-20 World Cup there. They really went around the world, and they started to become a fixture at these big international sports tournaments. Prior to the 2006 World Cup, I believe it was, you infiltrated uh, one of the main networks where uh, there was this figure, I guess, Dan Tan, who had uh, been working with or or learned from Uncle Frankie. Are you able to tell me about that story and how how that came about? Look, all the guys learned from Uncle Frankie. I mean, he really was a genius. Uh, And he's very dangerous, very charming, very well-influenced and and, and very moneyed guy now. uh, I uh, was lucky enough to get a, a scholarship at, at the University of Oxford, um, and we were talking uh, at my department, uh, an amazing department, um, uh, studying organized crime and corruption, and we, we centered in on Malik. Around what time was this? Uh, this was just after the Iraq War. Uh, so I'd covered the Iraq War from southeastern Turkey and Iraq itself, and then from there I went into Oxford in 2003. So uh, over those next few years, we we decided to focus my research into Malaysia because there'd been a a massive match-fixing scandal in 1994, um, which had actually been so serious that uh, 84 of the players in dozens of the the teams across the league had been arrested and and eventually, quote, put into exile or or some of them had served very brief jail terms. and so uh, uh, I went there to research that 1994 scandal and, and what had happened. And uh, what I very quickly discovered was that there wasn't a single, excuse me, there, there may have been one or two people, but most people in Malaysia and Singapore thought that the fixing was still going on in the leagues and the league and the fixing had indeed uh, metastasized to international fixing, was going around the world. And the more I asked questions, the more I dug into this, uh, the more I realized that this was correct, that this was right. 
So I approached one of the, the, the prominent fixers. He'd, he'd been to jail uh, and said, look, can I have a meeting with you? And uh, I described this in my first book, The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime. And uh, eventually, it was a, a, after a long period of negotiation back and forth, uh, it was agreed that I would meet him at a golf course and sat down, two and a half hour meeting, and it was uh, pretty intense. But it was one of those conversations, uh, really extraordinary. There, he had four or five mobile phones uh, there on his desk. In front of me, there was a kind of a heavy man standing behind him. There was a good-looking woman on the bed. And 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 he was utterly brazen, and, and he was fixing games right in front of me. Um, in fact, we began the conversation by him saying that there's a game going to happen in the Bundesliga, and I'll tell you the score right now. And, uh, you know, it, 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 I, I, as we spoke, uh, you know, he was getting phone calls from his contacts in Germany with updates on, on that fix that was happening then. So uh, about an hour into this conversation, I, I just couldn't, you know, I, I was just baffled by this. And, and, and so I, I asked him, I said, look, what's, what's the biggest game you've ever fixed? And he looked back at me and he said, um, I don't know, what's bigger, the Olympics or the World Cup? Wow. What was your reaction? And I had... Well, inside my head, I had I, I had two reactions. One is, this is either the biggest bullshitter in all of Asia, or you know, I mean, he could win a gold medal for bullshit, or this is an extraordinary story. And the second one thought that was going through my mind was, I really hope I get out of this place alive. I I, I really don't want to be a disappeared graduate student. <clears throat> so. I uh, very politely, very politely said to this organized crime figure, I, I, I'm so sorry. Uh, I, I mean this with complete respect, but I don't believe you. Um, I believe that you can fix these Asian football leagues. You, you clearly have. I believe that you could still do this, uh, but I, I, I just can't believe that you could fix a game at the World Cup. It's, it's just too difficult. And this guy <laughs> looks at me, you know, absolutely cold stone uh, and just says, uh, okay. Watch me. And 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 over the next seven eight months, uh, uh, I proceeded to see him do it, and um, it was one of those conversations, Sebastian, that seemed so extraordinary at the time, so unusual. But almost everything that he said uh, in that conversation in the subsequent years, I've I've learned to be learned was true, and that he was not uh, lying in any way. Well, and then. For how long did you stay there and uh, in, in gathering information and, and doing your research? Oh, gosh, look, I was in contact with those guys for the next two years. Uh, and I still have contacts in and around that world that are very close uh, to the fixers. Um, they, they often, uh, it, it's rare they can find a, a journalist that will tell them, tell the truth, uh, that, that will cover the story as it should be. So I remain their go-to person for most of these, uh, for many of the fixers in that world. But why would they be talking to you? And what's their motivation f for that? Uh, I, I, I talk about this in the fix at, at, at some length, as you know. Yeah. Uh, but to repeat to, to the our listeners today who may not know this, that was a question that, that, that uh, I wrestled with uh, for a long time because my first reaction 
aside from my personal safety in this meeting, was that this must be bullshit. It, it, it cannot be true that an Olympics or a World Cup could be fixed. And and subsequently, I I, I, from, I, I believe it is true. I, I believe that these guys have affected some of the, the, the games, uh, football games, soccer games that have been witnessed by billions of people around the world. What I think was 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 a, a, a strange mo- mixture of ego and also, uh, oddly enough, racism. In what sense? Um, m- many of the fixers are outcasts of their societies. So in Malaysia, it's the, and Indonesia as well, it's the Chinese guys that are doing much of the work and many of the Indians. Uh, in Singapore, it's many of the Indians that are, are doing this work. And they aren't just the Indians, they're the guys from the lowest sections of uh, Singaporean society. Um, and yet they have done something remarkable. I mean, putting all morality aside, this is, in terms of sporting fraud, these guys would be gold medal winners. Uh, what they've done, they've, they've gone around the world, they've, they've, they've spoken and convinced some of the top players of the world to fix games. Um, so it, 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 I, I think for them, it was almost a, a, it was almost a recognition. It was like, look, guys, we want to be recognized for what we've done. Yeah, I guess it's uh, a little similar. I mean, obviously, we've seen that with with even quote unquote regular mafia figures and and organized crime bosses who also have big egos and so on, and sometimes feel the need to uh, to be portrayed and, and tell their story. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. But but I, I think as well, these guys have have really done something extraordinary. And I, I'm not trying to sing their praises here, but if you look at it again, putting morality aside, what they accomplished uh, from at least 1991 uh, all the way through to current times is remarkable. I mean, they, they spun a web of corruption and match fixing into every continent except Antarctica uh, around the world. And they reached right up into the top of the game. Uh, and, and these are mostly men who would be uh, put aside in their own societies and who would not be recognized in their own society. So what they've done is remarkable. Who are the people that they collaborate with internationally? Because I can imagine just, let's use an example. Uh, I'm from Sweden. I know there's uh, there's been quite a bit going on there and there is even down to division two, three, and four where matches are being fixed. So mm-hmm. I guess my question is, who do they typically collaborate with at the national level? Because I can imagine if just a random guy shows up at a league somewhere and you know you can tell he's completely from the outside that it's probably not the easiest way to to penetrate. So mm-hmm. how do they how do they collaborate typically? Look, uh, to go back to what I was saying previously, uh, there are two halves of a fix. One is the Asian guys fix the gambling markets and they go and approach people who can approach the players. Because uh, it's very difficult if you're a Chinese chap from Singapore to walk into a dressing room in Ghana or, or you know, a bar in Ghana and approach these guys. There's no cultural reference that, you know, there may be a language problem, whatever. So usually what they do is they'll hire a local agent. So the guy who was working with the Ghanaian uh, international team, so the Ghanaian national team for years, was their former goalkeeping coach and goalkeeping star, a guy named Abu Kari Damba. Um, and I don't have any hesitation in saying this because Abu Kari Damba both, I, I talked to him with a hidden camera, uh, about his activities, but also because he was fired eventually by the Ghanaian national team uh, for attempting to fix 
uh, a game against Iran in 2007, uh, where the players testified that they were brought in, he was bringing in these guys from Malaysia and Singapore, and they were working together to fix that game. So they used top, either top players or top officials, uh, coaches, uh, and very senior people. Do they have infiltration all the way into like the national federations? Oh my goodness, of course, yes. And I'm not saying that every single national federation is um, uh, infiltrated by match fixes, but myself and a very senior integrity official um, were, were speaking uh, a number of months ago about the FIFA elections. And we put together just from our own files and the evidence from various court cases that probably... 20%, so some, somewhere around 10% of the FIFA people voting in that FIFA election, either for Sepp Blatter or for Sepp Blatter's replacement, had at some point been involved with the fixing, the match fixes. Uh, the, you know, the best case is the South African case uh, before the 2010 World Cup, where not only was Dan Tan uh, and Wilson Raj Paramal running uh, fixes of the friendly matches just before the World Cup, but they also had help from inside the South African Football Association. So there were officials who were working with them to fix those games. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I have a two-part question about the main motivations for an individual, whether a referee or a player, to accept fixing a match. So one, is it all about the money or are there at times other components or incentives to it? And two, what kind of money are we talking about? So as an example, let's say I'm a player in a second, third division somewhere making $2,000 a month. Um, do you have an idea or are there any ballpark numbers around how much money we're talking about that a player potentially could make on, on a deal like that? Right. Let, let me answer the first question first. Uh, the primary, almost complete uh, reason and motivation for match fixing on an individual basis, let's players and referees in soccer, is money. Uh, there's a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of humbug in my opinion, and, and the evidence supports my opinion, that when uh, players and referees claim that they were forced to match fix, that guns were brought put to their head and they were forced to fix various matches, um, Generally, that's not true. Generally, it's an excuse uh, to cover up their activities. Uh, it is true that players can be forced to fix matches, uh, but that's only after they 
do an agreement of some kind with a match fixer. And so this is a key integral part of the education uh, that I talk to when I talk to players and referees and associations and clubs. I say, look, never say yes to these guys because once you say yes, then you become their slave. That's when the forcing comes in. But but generally that first approach is always about money. Two, the, the question was, how much money can a player can make? Well, it really depends on the country. It really depends on the league and how much they, uh, how much they can make. But one key factor that our listeners, uh, will want to know is that most players have difficulty getting their salaries paid, be it in Spain, Greece, Turkey, Italy, Cyprus, right across, uh, former Soviet Eastern European countries, uh, right around the world. It's very, very problematic for football players and soccer guys to get the salaries that are due to them. And if we could, we could tackle that problem, uh, just pay the players what is in their contracts, then much of match fixing would disappear. Interesting. Last year in May, something very significant happened when there were a number of people arrested in Catania in Italy. And uh, that happened, I believe, just a few days before the infamous FIFA arrests happened. And, and perhaps that's why it didn't get the, the media attention. Um, can you tell me about that incident and the effects that it had? Yeah, it, it's an extraordinary case, and you're completely right, Sebastian, in that if it hadn't occurred just before the FIFA elections and the overturning of, of Sepp Blatter and the arrests in uh, Zurich, uh, people would have been focused on this much more. Because essentially what we're talking about in this case, in the Catani case in southern Italy, is, quote, an industrial system of corruption. So we've moved up from the players, we've moved up from the referees, and now, according to Italian police, there are well over 20 clubs in Italian uh, second and third division, Serie B, Serie C, who regularly organized fixed matches uh, on, a, on a systematic basis. And so it moves it well beyond what an average player is doing to make cash on the side, and it takes it right into the very way Italian soccer is organized and how the clubs see themselves. And on that note, along with the, um, with the FIFA arrests that then happened, how is all of that linked with uh, with match fixing? FIFA is is a is an old boys club. Uh, even now, it's an old boys club. It's a set of very well entrenched power brokers uh, who simply will not change the status quo unless they're absolutely forced to do it. And the general approach to soccer associations, football associations around the world, has been to try to talk this issue of match fixing away to pretend that they're doing something serious when really they are not. And where do you see FIFA today? Obviously we we have a new a new FIFA president in Gianni Infantino. Yes. Is that really going to change things? Well, I was in Zurich during the election. I was covering the elections uh, as a journalist. And and for a brief moment I was quite optimistic. I thought, well, Infantino, uh say what you like about him, UEFA's run as a professional organization. It's taken a very positive, proactive stance against match fixing since my book occurred. Uh Infantino was one of the executives that I met in Neon at UEFA's behest after my first book appeared. They flew me to Switzerland. They said, We've got a problem, what are we going to do about it? So for a few months I I, I was optimistic. However, since the first Congress in Mexico City 
uh, last week in, this is, we're speaking in May of 2016. I'm afraid my, uh, pessimistic side has come back. What happened there was, uh, Infantino specifically fired the man at the heart of FIFA who'd been leading many of the reforms and many of the cleanup, uh, efforts inside the organization, a guy named Dominic Scala. And also, he said that he had the right to fire this guy from, uh, then on, excuse me, Scala resigned, but Scala and Infantino had had a blowout, a major argument uh, the day before, and at the last day of the Congress, um, there was a, a, a sudden motion put on the table that Scala and the Integrity, the Ethics Committee inside FIFA, they could be fired by FIFA executives. So in other words, the very people that the FIFA executive, uh, excuse me, the FIFA Ethics Committee might be investigating could fire the ethics investigators. Well, that's a clear conflict of interest. And when you put in something like that, when you put in a sustained, clear conflict of interest, uh, you have a major problem. And I believe that part of that policy is also something that, and, and I don't know if this is confirmed or not, but I believe that even Infantino has led some of those questions at FIFA to instead of what we would think and what we would hope for is to democratize it, you know, that they brought even power back to a lot of the individuals up at the top. Yeah, I mean, that's a double-edged That's a double -edged sword because as we spoke about earlier in our, in our podcast, uh, many of the, you know, my, my estimate, somewhere around 10% of the people who've actually voted for Infantino and Sepp Blatter had in some way or their association had been implicated directly and deeply in match-fixing. So when you have that level of corruption at, at the grassroots level, i.e. at the National Football Association, National Soccer Associations around the world, um, you know, uh, putting more hands in professional bureaucrats may not be such a bad thing. Yeah. And uh, where do you see, I mean, now it seems like, I know the, the upcoming World Cups, both in Russia and Qatar, have been uh, big topics. And But it seems like now they're almost actively trying to work to save the Qatar 2022 World Cup. Uh, what are your thoughts around that, and what do you think is going to happen? Well, again, we began the podcast by discussing the three battles that I've been involved in my professional life over the last 10, 15 years. One is uncovering the match fixers and 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 walking that tightrope between for my personal safety and also my legal safety. The second battle was to get anyone to believe it when the first book came out and, and really approach it and address this issue in a serious way. And and those two battles have won, been won, obviously. There have been now 32 national police investigations based on my work. Uh, there are uh, really a, a kind of a general acceptance that match fixing is a systemic issue in modern-day soccer and modern-day sport. However, there's a third battle which is going on, and that is that most of the debate in and around FIFA and this international soccer is actually manufactured by various public relations companies around the world. Uh, and so these, this debate, uh, much of the uh, discussions, most of the conferences around integrity and sports ethics are uh, financed or sometimes uh, wholly run by the Qataris. And many of the, quote, ethics uh, people, the integrity people in soccer, have not responded in an appropriate way to that. How are these cases 
around the world being investigated and brought to justice? Is there an international coalition or is there more responsibility on, on each country to, uh, to deal with it? Look, uh, police forces around the world have, have uh, responded to this challenge magnificently. And there, as I said, there have been at least 32 national police investigations. I get phoned and contacted on a weekly basis by police investigators uh, who are putting the pieces together by themselves. What has not helped is Interpol. Uh, they accepted money from not only tobacco industry, but they also accepted money from FIFA. And before the FIFA arrests, before 41 of their top executives were arrested either by the Swiss National Police or by the FBI, uh, Interpol was not told. That shows you how little trust uh, regular investigating police officers around the world have in Interpol. So Interpol has really been part of a kind of a cosmetic uh, response to this challenge in sport. Um, but really, there are a whole bunch of very, very good police officers in local police stations around the world that have responded fantastically to this. Is there typically enough evidence to bring at least, you know, the top kingpins and to bring them to justice? Or is it typically the the runners who, who get caught? It, you know, like in the drug trade, right? We see it's typically the the end smuggler or the guy who sells it that, that gets caught. But there's no problem about getting to the very top in this thing. This is the most easy uh, sports integrity challenge ever. I mean, this is far, far easier to deal with than, than doping. Do doping is really um, ingrained in sports because it helps the athletes win, and athletes usually want to win. Uh, there's a guy named Dan Tan that I've written about extensively based in Singapore. He created a network of fixers uh, and, excuse me, fixed games numbering in the thousands around the world. He worked with many of the sports associations, the football associations around the world. Uh, he has been incarcerated in Singaporean police, for, uh, Singaporean prison for the last two and a half years, and he's been unable to testify. There are two international arrest warrants standing out, outstanding against him. If uh, Interpol was really serious about dealing with match fixing. They would get Dantan out of Singapore prison. They would get him on a plane to a neutral jurisdiction where he could testify openly about the kingpins that financed his network. Uh, and we could clean up this problem. Uh, and it really is a charade of, um, you know, pretending uh, that Singapore or Interpol or that many of these soccer associations want to deal with match fixing. They don't. As you said, they want to deal with the runners. They want to deal with, uh, you know, the low-level people, if at all. But 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 what we're seeing in country after country after country is the paradigm of the local police forces, be it in Hungary, Austria, Germany, Czech Republic, Finland, Italy, Spain, going after by themselves these crooks in soccer, and consistently. They're running into problems with their local soccer association. The National Soccer Association won't back these police investigations, nor will FIFA or Singaporean police or Interpol release the number one match fixer in the world that can really identify who the kingpins are and who has financed this organization. Do you think in any near future that we'll get there? I think this is the greatest scandal in world sport. Uh, I think what we're seeing is one... A, a, an extraordinary uh, match-fixing ring, and two is a cover-up, an organized, regularly in place cover-up to stop this uh, this this wave of match-fixing going on. We could stop match-fixing instantly 
instantly, or excuse me, not instantly, but 90% of match fixing could be stopped if we could have one kingpin, one of those backers of Dan Tan's gangs, uh, put in jail. Because all the other kingpins, and they're extremely wealthy, influential people in Asia and around the world, would think twice. They'd go, well, why, you know, why would we bother risking a match, fixing a match if we're going to be humiliated, embarrassed, going to prison? Hey, it's not worth our while. We'll just carry on doing our regular stuff and we'll just ignore match fixing. But when they're watching the international sports organizations deliberately not go after them and Interpol, the international police organization, setting up their uh, headquarters in Singapore, it really constitutes the greatest scandal in international sports today. I would like to ask you, since I'm based in uh, in New York and in the U.S., I would like to ask about your thoughts on um, on Concacaf. They uh, quite recently <laughs> appointed. <laughs> oh, it's a great comedy hour. Yes, they recently appointed one of your compatriots, uh, Victor Montagliani, who was the the head of Canadian mm-hmm. soccer. And there's obviously been some some reports on on him. And you earlier also talked about the um, the huge problems that that Canada has faced and. Uh, and I also want to tie it into because in the beginning when we started off, you were talking about the globalization, and um, so I'm, I'm curious to hear your your perspectives on that. Well, look, there, there are two questions. One is uh, Concacaf, which is a laughable organization. They've had most of their senior executives uh, going back twenty, thirty years, uh, are now either convicted of multi-million dollar racketeering or uh, facing extradition. That's Jack Warner and Trinidad and Tobago on on an international arrest warrants put in place by the U.S. Department of Justice. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> it's difficult to take them seriously. And Victor Montellini, uh, my compatriot here up here in Canada, is a joke. I mean, he's the king of mediocrity. Uh, this is a man uh, who, under his reign, the Canadian men's national soccer team is now below the Faroe Islands, a population of 30,000. We have a population of 36 million. Um, uh, you know, we're behind Antigua and Barbuda. We're behind 80,000 people. We're behind many of these small, tiny Caribbean nations. Uh, but more importantly, uh, uh, Victor uh, said uh, on a printed interview, you know, you know that that his business inspirations were one Jerome Valky. Uh, the Secretary General of FIFA, who's now under arrest in Switzerland, and two, Jeffrey Webb, uh, the then president of CONCACAF, who is now uh, admitted to a multi-million dollar uh, racketeering and, and fraud charge. And not only did he commit this multi-million dollar racketeering and fraud charge, he also stole some of his money from the Youth Football Association of his own Cayman Islands. So he was taking money for, put aside to, to help teenagers um, uh, and it helped finance this really sordid, seedy uh, lifestyle of his where he spent at one point $25,000 in a strip bar. So this is the guy who Victor Montalini, the now president of CONCACAF, my compatriot as a Canadian, I'm deeply embarrassed by him, said was a business inspiration. It gets even worse. Victor brought Jeffrey Webb, uh, at least had him quoted as an inspiration for integrity uh, there was a big national conference up here in Ottawa, Canada, on protecting the game, sports integrity, and Jeffrey Webb uh, issued the keynote statement for that conference. Three weeks later, he was in prison at the behest of the FBI and U.S. Department of Justice and arrested by Swiss uh, police. I mean, this is a joke. Victor is a joke, and this is not a reformer. This is not a man who has the cojones of Richard Pound. 
Uh, Richard Pound is another Canadian. He's a man who makes me feel very proud to be a Canadian. He's a man that's fought to establish WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, is currently involved in uh, revealing the full extent of the Russian doping uh, scams and schemes uh, in that country. But um, Victor Montalini is, is a sad joke, and I really don't think that CONCACAF will improve substantially under his regime, under his watch. How does this all happen? Because this is, it's not like it's not public knowledge, right? It, it, it was very quick for me to just Google a little bit, and, and a lot of these reports would surface. And then, and then you know, you, you look at countries such as the U.S., such as, such as Canada, and, you know, let's say some of the Northern European nations, you know, we as Westerners, we always kind of see ourselves as, you know, we're, we're honest, we're, we're the, the good cop, we're, we're always the nice guys, and we don't cheat. We, we read about the, the Asian, you know, betting syndicates and, and gangs, and it's almost like we're, we're very quick to point fingers and say, well, over there, you know, those guys, they kind of do it, but that wouldn't happen here. And now it's happening right in front of our eyes with the most important football governing body that we have here. I'm just baffled how, how we can allow that to happen. Uh, look, uh, first of all, I, I've never said that. Uh, I, I've never uh, pointed my finger at one nationality. In fact, I've fought very strongly yeah, against, against yeah. it. Um, but I, I'll tell you why, Sebastian, because almost every uh, – I remember when I first came out in 2008, the Germans uh, said, you know, this cannot be possible. It cannot be happening in Germany. And they did exactly as you said, uh, kind of pointed the finger and engaged in what I regard as a kind of racist uh, exercise. Uh, well, lo and behold, a couple of years later, there was a, a major organized crime task force against match fixing in Germany, and it was shown that several hundred matches uh, across Germany had been fixed uh, over the course of several years. So uh, I, I heard the same thing in South Korea uh, around that same time. A South Korean journalist phoned me and said, well, that may happen in Singapore, but it would never happen in South Korea because we're too honorable. Gosh, I wish you'd been right. There were 55 uh, South Korean top players arrested for whom sadly committed suicide. Uh, it goes on and on and on. And there's a, there's a kind of a denial. And you're absolutely right. Almost every country that I talk to, almost every journalist that I speak to or official I speak to says, well, that is a problem of someone else. We would never have corruption. And I'm sorry, that's just not right. And it's just not right because of the phenomenon that we were speaking about at the beginning of this podcast, which is there's now this mass sports gambling market numbering in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And that buys a lot of influence and it buys a lot of sway over people. Another thing um, I was thinking about, and this also goes back to what you mentioned initially about the globalization and the, the rapid growth of, uh, of international football. And it's typically positioned as something very positive that you know, now we have more and more nations involved in FIFA and becoming members. And I, be, I believe this was in one of your books, I think, where, where it was mentioned that there are even more members of FIFA than the United Nations. Yes. And uh, partly responsible for this immense growth have been the, the big sponsors. Mm -hmm. Can you just uh, elaborate a little bit on that? Of course I can, yes. My, my, my sense is that if, if listeners... Uh, have become engaged and have become shocked by what we're speaking about, uh, a really good way of cleaning up international soccer is quite simply write an email to Adidas, uh, you know, at the end of this podcast and just say, look, I really respect your company. I really respect the, your merchandise. I'm not suggesting you're corrupt. But without doubt, Adidas is the, is the company that has built the modern manifestation of FIFA. And 
uh, I don't like the way FIFA is done, run. And as a sponsor, I'm just not going to back your products with you. I'm going to go buy Puma. I'm going to go buy uh, another brand, but I'm not going to buy Adidas. And if enough of our listeners did that to enough of the sponsors of FIFA, we would get change very, very quickly indeed. It is, it is the people who pay the tunes at FIFA who change what's going on there, and those are the sponsors. Uh, there's a great book, uh, Three Stripes, Two Brothers, One Feud, uh, about the formation of Adidas and Puma uh, by two brothers in southern Germany. Uh, and that really is the, 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 the tale of modern sports. And Adidas built this modern manifestation of uh, FIFA. Uh, when you go into the FIFA headquarters in Zurich, it, you really have a sense that this is the house that FIFA uh, Adidas built. Adidas logos ever, Adidas footballs are everywhere, Adidas balls, uh, you know, flags, the whole bit. So really just, you know, write an email and say, look, I, I'm not happy with what, what's going on with FIFA. I'm not happy with modern day, uh, the direction of modern day soccer. You're the company that backs this. I, we respect your products it, totally. And we're not suggesting that Adidas executives would participate in bribery, but there's no doubt that Adidas sponsorship is, is allowing the status quo to continue with the status quo. So, you know, I'm not going to buy your products until this changes. And if enough people were to do that, it would change. It would change very, very, very quickly. Is that part of like lack of awareness, even internally? I mean, now we've mentioned one of those big sponsors, or are they oh, gosh, no, no, crystal no, clear no. about this and they know exactly what's going on? And uh, look, I, I can't speak for why they do that, but but. Um, uh, the, the major companies, they're not stupid. They understand the reputation. And, uh, I, I, I really don't understand why they would continue. Um, uh, I know a number of them in October of 2015, finally, after so many of the senior executives of FIFA had been arrested and were convicted, finally issued a statement saying that we, you know, we don't like what's going on in, in inside FIFA. But crikey, I mean, that's, you know, that was very far down the road. Really, really far down the road. So again, I say to sports fans, I say to people who like football and soccer, look, guys, write an email. Just, just send an email to these sponsors and say, you know, uh, respect, but well, I'm going to drink Pepsi. Uh, I'm going to, you know, uh, not drink Heineken beer. I'm, 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 I'm not going to support McDonald's, and I'm not going to wear Adidas until this organization is cleaned up. Please take an active stance in cleaning it up, and those sponsors will step forward if enough people do that. Are you aware of any independent groups that are already actively working on that? Uh, there was one. Sadly, they've now uh, uh, joined the Qatari initiative. And I, I think uh, Qatar is a great country, but it has absolutely no credibility inside sports and no credibility uh, leading a sports integrity movement. We're going to get towards the end here pretty soon. I have one more question, and then I want to just dive into a set of rapid-fire questions, because I know you're, you're a little limited on time, but we'll, we'll do this, and then, you know, down the road, I'm sure I, I would love to invite you again for, for a part two, because there is so much to talk about, and uh, I, I could probably have a... I'd, I'd be happy I to I could easily that. have a hundred more questions, but... Well, it's whether anyone's listening to us still, so <laughs> that's the other thing. <laughs> exactly. So, in, in, in a brief, let's say, statement, what do you see as the and I think you've touched on it several times, but just to kind of wrap it up, what do you see as the ultimate solution and how do we realistically get there? Look, I mean, there's so many things that we can do that, that are so easy. Uh, I mean, let's talk about fixing inside the International Olympic Committee and the uh, you know fixing that goes on in Olympic sports. Bingo, tournament incentives. Most of the fixing that goes on inside Olympic sports is related to 
teams or athletes, it benefiting them to lose a game um, and so that they progress on. There was a case last month in April 2016 where the French national water, men's water polo team deliberately lost a game to the Canadian men's national team. The referee's report said this. The French TV commentators said this. Even the winning team, the Canadian winning team, said, hey, come on, like this is ridiculous. And the International Olympic Committee refuses to take an active stance in this. All they need to do is say to their sports associations, look, we want to see that you've certified all your tournaments so that every single game benefits the winner. The winners uh, are incentivized and people are really incentivized to be higher, faster, stronger. Uh, inside FIFA, as I said, it's just a question of approaching the sponsors and, and saying, look, uh, you know, enough of this mess inside sports governance. Let's get it cleaned up. Um, and, and finally, I think with, um, uh, in terms of match fixing, as we were talking about before, if football leagues around the world were really serious about cleaning this up, they would ask that, um, clubs before the season starts put into uh, a special bank account the player's salary for the next season. And at the end of every game, those, those, excuse me, end of every week, that salary is paid automatically to the players, just goes out of their accounts into the players' accounts. And that would stop, that would cut down on most fixing that goes on. Much of the fixing is motivated simply because the players have not been paid. The biggest game that you know of that's been fixed? Uh, there have been games at the World Cup and, and at the Olympics. Uh, the match fixes have gone to these big international football tournaments since at least 1991 in Melbourne. This has been sustained and corroborated both by the fixers, but by players, by the coaches, by associations, by Sepp Blatter himself, uh, by referees that are at these tournaments. It, it's, a, it's absolutely important. Would there be a couple of uh, actual examples that you could mention? I, look, there was a semi-final, uh, excuse me, a third-place final uh, between Bulgaria and Sweden, where the players on both teams, sets of teams, were approached by fixers. That's just one. There are many others. The main characteristic to become successful at what you do, and uh, and a recommendation for someone wanting to follow in your footsteps. Look, I don't like to tooting my own horn. I, I think the one thing that my my parents taught me was never give up. Uh, if the fight is worth fighting, you do not give up. It doesn't matter if your team's losing eight nothing or you're you're ahead. Uh, keep playing the game until the end. And um, this is what I've tried to do in this in this fight. Uh, it's been difficult, um, uh, and, and it's been it's been very very challenging and quite dangerous at times. But do not give up. A person you look up to or admire who is a driving force in the same fight against corruption and match fixing. Andrew Jennings, uh, the author of Foul, the author of Lords of the Rings, a uh, British journalist uh, who, who really inspired me to get into this field. We're completely different in styles uh, as men. We present ourselves very differently, but uh, pretty much everything that man says, I agree with. Every syllable, practically, that Andrew says, I agree with. So Andrew Jennings, if people are listening, uh, I strongly recommend going straight to the, his website and ordering his books. They're brilliant. I agree. And uh, I, I am in touch with him actually currently to try to get him on on the podcast. I, I really hope you get it. He, he's well worth listening to. He's unlike boring Declan Hill. He's, got, <laughs> he's entertaining and he's witty and stuff. He's got great stuff to, to talk about. He's a brilliant man. Absolutely brilliant. He definitely is. We've talked, we've talked a couple of times. So we'll, we'll see if I can make that happen. Good. Um, a book relevant to your career 
and work that has impacted you the most and that you recommend for others to read? I know you've mentioned a couple of rec- I'll say it again. It's Joe McGuinness's book, uh, The Miracle of Castel di Sangre. Uh, it's a superb written book. Uh, it makes you fall in love with Italy, gives you a sense of the love and passion, but it's superb investigative uh, journalism at its best. Uh, Joe McGuinness, The Miracle of Castel di Sangre, uh, a very strong recommendation for that book. It, it really teaches that, that, that organized crime uh, reporting doesn't have to be grim and dire. It can be quite funny, and it's, it's, it's an excellent book. Is there anything that you feel like hasn't been reported on or covered at all? Well, there's a whole bunch, but I'm not going to tell you, a fellow journalist, because I'm working on those stories. But just I would say to people, look, stay tuned. I've got a bunch more stories coming down the pipeline that are that are very, very big. And uh, this is not an issue that's going to go away, sadly, anytime soon. This is the greatest scandal facing modern-day sport. It could have been cleaned up, and uh, the fight goes on. And on that note, how can people follow you and find out more? Uh, please follow me on, on Twitter, Declan underscore Hill, uh, or come to my uh, website, follow my blog, uh, Declan at DeclanHill.com. Um, uh, please comment on, on the blogs if you disagree or even if you agree. I, I love hearing from people. Uh, and, and as I said, look, guys, actually, Sebastian, if you don't mind, if I can just take a minute or so, because basically you've asked me questions and, and they've always been about my um, my work and um, um, uh, it's it's been pretty grim listening. Uh, I, I'm sure many of our podcasters, the people who are listening to agree. And it, please let me end on a positive note. Um, there, soccer, sport in general, is a great way of passing on morals and values and ideals. And I was in a, 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 a slum in Kenya. I use that word slum um, because that's what the people there used to describe it. Uh, incredibly impoverished system. And the, the team set up in the heart of the slum, Matari, uh, the Matari Youth Sports Association, uh, has battled against organized crime. It's battled against corruption. Uh, it's changed the lives of tens of thousands of people. And uh, I remember speaking to a 13-year-old girl there in the middle of this slum, and, and she looks up at me and she says, you don't get it, do you? Everything in my life is corrupt. You know, my school is, you know, corrupt. The exams are corrupt. The cops in the streets are corrupt. Everything, except when I go on that field with 11 of my friends and we play 11 other people and the ref's there, that's the only time I get justice in my life. And when I have problems getting up in the morning, when I have problems fighting, and when I have problems keeping on, I think of that girl, and I think, I will not let you down. So I urge our listeners, please, it's a beautiful game. It's worth fighting for. Uh, please don't give up on it. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. And, uh, you know, on behalf of all the true fans of football, thanks for, for the work that you're doing, your persistence, and, and your belief in that things can actually change for the better. So thank you so much. My very last question, who do you think I should interview next in this podcast? Uh, Andrew Jennings. You know, uh, Andrew Jennings is great. If you can get hold of him, Simon Farina. Uh, but Jennings is fantastic. Declan, thank you so much and, and best of luck. I'm sure we're all excited to to follow your progress and uh, and also individ- individually as, as fans take some steps to uh, to improve on things. So thank you. Cool. Tosun tak, molte grazie e ciao a presto. Thanks, brother. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe to it in iTunes or on the podcast app. 
please write a review. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to email me at sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. It's at coffeesfootball. Check out the coffeeandfootball.com website. There you'll find any related content and additional info on each guest. This show also lives on SoundCloud and Acast. Thanks again. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.